Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. Warbyparker.com covered. This is an RNZ podcast. They say it takes a village to raise a child. I'm Catherine Ryan. And here we draw on my conversations with experts on Nine to Noon to help you navigate family life. The good divorce. What are the parental attitudes and skills that can help children cope with a separation or divorce? Education consultant and parenting coach Joseph Dreesen talks about uh, these attitudes and skills uh, and is with us now to do so. Joseph, good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Good divorce. Um Let's just say some some can perhaps be can be less no, destructive than than others, yeah. right? And so so let's go through that. Um, like the good divorce is in some ways a misnomer um, because for many children the divorce is always traumatic. But so I thought I'll first talk about the feeling life which both parents and children experience and how that should be navigated, and then the second part of the talk. I'm going to talk to parents how what they can do positively to to rebuild the children's trust in the family unit, which is different now than it used to be. So the first part I think I need to talk about is that that what needs to happen is the adult must realize that the children experience the breakup in a different way than they do. Uh, they have different feelings about it and different reasons for that. And and the parent needs to make a decisive moral decision to process their feelings with their friends and 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 their counselors and, and etc. and not use the children as a prop. And that is easy said than done because we might have teenagers who are very close to us and we might share with them. But in fact, it contaminates them. So. So the reason for that is that what people are surprised about in a divorce, that our rational mind, our cortex, which evolved two million years ago, which can calculate and, and, and do maths about the whole thing, it come to a rational decision. This relationship isn't working and therefore uh, it would be better for all of us to split up. That might be true. And yet, when it actually happens, then we are surprised as humans that we're overwhelmed by very primitive feelings which are which belong to our limbic system, the system of our animal heritage. And so, for example, geese, when one of them dies, the other one goes into a grief cycle. You can see it on their faces. And they, they fly around aimlessly for weeks looking for their partner. Grief is a very ancient uh, feeling. So what happens when we split up uh, we go through a cycle of feelings, both the children and the parents, which are much stronger than most of us realize when we, we're overwhelmed by them. And so it goes through a, a little cycle. First, we are deeply attached to the concept we were married or something like that. Then we lo lose that. And suddenly the limbic brain says, you lost your husband. You lost your, you, you lost your, your, your marriage. You lost your partner. And you said, but the rational mind says, yeah, well, that was good. But the, the limbic mind says it's bad, and so we're overwhelmed with grief, then often fear and anxiety 
overwhelms us, then massive regrets about what we should have and shouldn't have done, and then it ends up in anger. Now, that cycle might take two years, for some people five, or it might come and go. And what happens is that the adult is sort of knocked off their balance by these strong feelings, and then they've got to manage the children who are also knocked off the balance by their strong feelings. I want to talk about it a little bit later, but the key is that the parent must realize, okay, I've got to manage these feelings. And I do that by talking to my friends and to my counselor. And, and, and then in front of the child, I try and stay moderate. Now, that's very important, especially when you get into the angry phase. And, and so you don't contaminate. Like, like you laughed when I said the good divorce. And you said, well, some of them go to custard completely. And the reason is that the people underestimate the strength of the feelings. So having talked about that, then what I propose, uh, the advice to the parent is, A, you recognize they're different. B, you recognize these feelings are really, really strong. And then uh, what you realize is you can't use the children. You just simply cannot use them. So you can't spend two hours crying in front of your four-year-old. They will devastate them. You can't badmouth your partner in front of your adolescent child because they might like them. And so you've got to not use them and you've got to be, be you got to realize that I can't use my children. And that's very hard when you live by yourself with your children and you're really sad. And and that is the key. The parents who do not do that, who've got the ethics, maturity, strength of character, and the resources of friends and family to manage their own emotions by themselves, they are then in a position to manage their children way better. So that's 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 what I want to say. And then the last part of that part of the talk is before we go on to what can you do for your children is that when it really goes to custard is when people get into the angry phase and you might it pays us to talk about why anger is good anger is actually the end result of the loss of attachment the loss of love and why well Dickens, maybe people don't read Dickens anymore, but in Miss Havisham in Dickens is an, a woman who was stood up during her wedding and 20 years later he was still lying around in a wedding dress in a, in a decaying wedding hall. She, there was a wonderful chapter about a person who cannot move on from grief. And so our nature tell us, well, you can get onto grief by getting angry. And so often the adults become angry about their partner, angry about their marriage, angry about everything, angry about the opposite gender, and they and they go through that, and it's good because it enables them to cut those ties. It enables them to regroup as an individual autonomous adult, and it enables them then to find a more suitable partnership. So nature knows what it's doing, but unless you know what you're doing, you're just consumed by it. And so what happens, the toxic, dangerous, catastrophic divorces are when the angry adult starts using the children as weapons, withholding access, bad-mouthing the opposite person, contaminating the love the child has for their parent with their rage, which is actually just a temporary phase they just need to go through, and they contaminate and damage the child. And what happens then is that the child feels guilty that they love the other parent because their other parent doesn't love them. And so the child becomes conflicted, deeply anxious, uh, doesn't really know what to do. 
And the worst thing is if you, if the whole thing becomes generalized, all women are bad, all men are bad, and, and, and the girl is a woman, well, how does she feel now? You know, my dad tells me that mum is dead, mum is bad, all women are bad, uh, goes through a tremendous misogynist phase, and then what does girls think? You know, I'm a woman, you know what I mean? It becomes deeply conflicted, deeply painful, and, and the children will show it up in anxiety, bedwetting, rages, getting off the rails, school goes to pot, the whole thing. Or, or the opposite, you know, um, and so... That's what I'm arguing against. That's what the research literature shows, and that's what my own experience shows of, of spending 30 years looking after children. It's the bad divorce where the parent cannot get rid of their emotions properly and contaminates and damages the child. So just, that's my first part of my talk. Just before we get to the next part, yeah, yeah, do you have to take small steps in some way? Because do you have to start with, as you say, just not using the child uh, as a weapon against the other parent or just somehow stopping the behaviour in the moment that you desperately want to carry out. Because we're going to talk about in a moment how both parents um, need to understand what's happening with their child and also how they go forward. But do you need to just start somewhere with stopping yeah. the bad behaviour yeah. and stopping and yeah. <laughs> getting, yeah. it, getting it away from the child, as you say, working your anger out with adults who are there yeah. to help you, and then you yeah, can totally. begin to you, get to something that's going to be practical for everybody. Absolutely. And the way to do that is, A, you've got to live a moral life. I think both all of us would agree we have to make moral decisions. We can't go around stealing and hitting people and, 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 and having an affairs. Kind of, you know, we try and be moral. And so in this firestorm, um, you know, we have to gather our morality and think, what is best for our children? And how can I help my child? And, and we've got to take responsibility for the fact that, okay, it's our marriage which broke up, but they are the sort of recipients of the damage. And so we've got to think, I've got to do the right thing. But the way to do that is you don't do that through rational thinking. You do that through processing your feelings and having good friends, good relatives who actually don't go into a hate session with you and say, well, you know, this, and, and goes back to your primary emotions. Anger is a stems from loss of attachment. And so when you've got a good counselor, they'll say, well, so what is really underneath it? And, and you might have a huge cry and, and that helps you process your anger. But the reality is that in divorce, one must be a moral person and do the right thing and go towards your courage and your virtues and say, I'm not going to damage my children because I want to get back at my ex because it's the worst thing you can do. Okay, so part one, so important. Before you can get anywhere, you have to learn to manage what's happening in you. To part, Absolutely. To part two now, um, now and part how to two, help your child. Yeah, people are going to be quite surprised about this. Well, what happens is that a child has in their little brain an idealized world. Mum and dad love me. Our family is happy and safe. The world is all beautiful and nothing will happen to me. That That is an idealized or in, in, in psychological terms, an archetypal blueprint. And so it's quite possible that the child's parents aren't actually like that. <laughs> but they don't discover that until they get older. You know, the child thinks mum is great and dad is a hero and they all perfect and and the family it's all functional that, that's what they believe they need to believe that how else do they cope with life and so when that is shattered because we have a, everybody breaks up the child is mourning 
not the actual parent, they do that as well, but they're also mourning that their 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 dream is gone, their world has gone, everything is gone. And the reality is it has. All of a sudden they only have one parent. The other parent is gone. They might never make contact. That does happen. Uh, and then they think, well, if one parent can go, they both can go and then I'm an orphan. That can happen. I've dealt with children like that who've lost both parents and, and they're, they're in foster parents' houses. So so the fears are real and the idealized image is real. So once parents realize that the child is actually mourning an idealized picture of their family, then they realize, well, actually, we can help them. And we can help them with that because we can say to the children, okay, it feels bad and it is bad because mom and dad are not living, you know, but we are still a family. And, and the child said, well, how come, you know, nobody's living with us. And so, well, your dad is maybe living, you know, in another part of town, but he loves you and mom loves you and we love you. That is, the parent actually has to say the very things they don't want to say. <laughs> they want to say, "Your my ex partner's hopeless, but you're better off without them, and uh, <laughs> and we're going to start a new life together by ourselves, you and me." And they say the opposite. They say, "We are still a family. Your dad and your mum still love you. We're going to love you together. It's going to be different. It's going to be sad and difficult for you. We understand that, but we are here for you." And you've got to, in word and deed, do that. So in word or deed, you've got to say, it's time for you to go to your dad and time for you to go to your mom. And and and, uh, and I'll talk about that next session about how to manage your co-parenting really well. But the key is frequency, uh, uh, frequent little phone calls, frequent text, frequent the parents saying, I am here for you. And we are both working together. Now, I can give you some wonderful examples of real parents who have done that. I know uh, some real parents who split up. They were pretty sad, and they had all those firestorms, but they decided rationally to actually, as a temporary transitional measure, to rent two houses next to one another. <laughs> and the children will, okay, mum and dad are separate, but we're still together. I know one family where they decide to live in the same neighborhood for a while. I know some families who actually uh, really commit to co uh, to uh, joint parenting and the children go from one to the other. I'll talk about that next time that has its difficulties. But And both parents then sometimes say, well, well let's all go to McDonald's together. And, and, and the key is that both parents say, your other parents love you. We still love you. We are still together. Another example is I know one family who's, who hired a facilitator to have a joint meeting where both parents and children hammered out the common rules of both, household, both households. So what I'm saying here is that when the parent get away from their own feelings and they actually go out of their way to reassure the children that the family is still functioning, the parents are still together in some ways, the child is safe and happy, they sort of glue back together that broken archetype of my family is gone, that the parents glue it together. So it might not be as good as it was for you, remember that is for you, because the child might think, I don't know why you guys are divorcing. I, I love my dad. I love my mum. You know, and uh, and so the parents got to realise that for the child, it's been a horrific experience, and they've got to glue it back together. And the research shows that the parents who do this in word and deed, um, and create a working relationship, even though it might be difficult for them. They still do it. The children, they respond much better, much better.
uh, it's important for parents to realize, Catherine, that if you do a, a longitudinal study of children who, are all, who, are, who have apparent bereavement, and then you compare it to children who had a divorce, well, they're both, both same things. You know, you would think that it's the same. They lose a parent. The statistics of children who are bereaved have a bereaved parent is much better than children who are divorced. But the divorced children can be put in two groups, but we can just compare them. When a parent dies and the child is shattered by the loss of the parent, the loss of the family, our social responses are utterly different. We have funerals. We have wakes. Everybody talks positively about the, the person. We have a farewell ceremony. Everybody keeps on saying to the child how wonderful your dad was or your mum. She was just the best ever. And so the child idealized image of the bereaved parents actually gets glued together and gets reinforced. And they cherish that memory of that person. And they feel, well, okay. My dad has passed away, but actually he was a wonderful dad and everybody keeps talking about him. There's photographs of him and mum says he's a wonderful person. And so we manage the bereavement, the grief, the loss of attachment and the anger in a funeral way better than we do a contaminated, toxic divorce. And so when you compare those, those two sets of children, the children who are divorced, they fall into two groups. The group I'm talking about, if the parents do this the right thing, that is they process their emotions by themselves. They help the children to process their emotions. They respect that the children's idealized image is shattered, but they try and glue it together as best they can. And in word and deed, they help those children. They parent them jointly. The research, if you compare those children as a group longitudinally in terms of you name it you know their own divorces their mental well-being anxiety suicides you name it they in fact do really well it's the children who are part of a toxic divorce where the parents contaminate this idealized archetypal model and actually keep on stomping on it and shattering it and breaking down the child's fundamental trust in societal relationships and their parental reactions. They are the children who are deeply hurt and deeply contaminated and they don't do very well. So that's what I'm arguing against it. So in summary, the second part is, as a parent, remember the child's world has been broken and try and glue it back together in a separate way. Allow them their own feelings and processes realize that they're going through a very long process of, of all these feelings. The research shows that some children correctly assess their parents as to be shot out of the water. They might be seven. They see their parent of a 40 not functioning, and they decide to become the parent. They decide they're going to put their grief on hold, and they try and be really good children in order to keep the parent going. Once the parent has recovered, those children then do their own grief cycle and they go through angry phases, uh, tantrums, um, not doing well at school, being really rude and angry and sad. And what is required by the parent is a real insight that now it's the child's turn to process those feelings, which I as an adult am partly responsible for of initiating. So don't get angry with your difficult teenager and call them you know, hopeless and kick them out. No, just think, wow, okay, here's the 
fallout of this relationship breakup and how can I help this child process that and be the best parent I can be. Joseph, we've had some questions about using children as weapons, but you've traversed that very, very thoroughly, including what's happening sometimes in someone until they can realise, like until they realise they have to deal with their and get a grip on their own feelings and behaviour. Absolutely. Okay, so here's another one that's a little bit different. A question yes. for your experts this morning. What is the best attitude and approach for a parent to take when the other parent is largely absent from the child's life and gets in touch only irregularly? What can a parent do to help a child cope with this situation? Two things. The first thing is to try and engage that parent really nicely and to maybe link them to this program and, and, to, and to maybe for a few letters, very kind, and say we realize it's all hard for us. Because many parents, you've got to realize, they cut their children off because they're devastated by the grief and they just don't want to activate it again. They feel the children have died and they just want to walk away from it because they can't, they're not processing their grief. They themselves need to uh, be helped and said, your grief is so bad that you're just walking away from it, but it's not good for your child. And, um, and so that needs to happen. But you as a partner often, uh, you've got to do this very nicely and say, you know, we realize it's really sad and hard for you, but your child is really missing you. And, and the research shows that frequency is the key. That is the key. If you frequently contact your child in little text and messages and Skype and visits, their grief disappears because you have re-emerged. You're not dead anymore. You're there. And so the grief disappears and with it all the tremendous emotional processing. And so you should try that. If they respond, well, that's a big tick uh, next to both of you. If they don't respond and sounds really weird, you need to do what we do with funerals. We build up that person in the mind of our children and we, we, we create for them a memory and an image which they can cherish and which they can use as a template of I'm really loved by this wonderful parent even though he's passed away. And so this sounds really hard. This sounds really hard, but it's the way to go. You, you might say make a photo album of that person and say, oh, you're dead. Or mum say, your mum really loves you, you know. And, um, and and she's probably thinking about you every night, but she's really busy and she forgets things. You know what she's like. But she loves you, you know what I mean? And, and here's the present she gave you last year. She really does love you. And your, your child might say, well, I don't think she does. She never calls me, you know. Well, you know, maybe it's hard for that person, but I know you say, that they really love you. And you try and create a picture of all the incidents where that person has loved them. In the meantime, you keep working at them and say, can you can you just, you know, you could even make the call yourself. You say, hey, make a call and, 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 and Melissa wants to talk to you. And that might actually break the yeah. ice. So the key is there to engineer it in reality. And if you can't engineer the reality, you engineer the self-image in the child. That sounds like similar advice to another emailer who's talked about international breakups. Um, as the dad, he's here with all three exactly children. Exactly the same. Their, their mother is is, in, is overseas. But the same thing. Yeah. It's all exactly about this the same. child. With Skyping. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Skyping, texting, a little letter here, a saving up. They might open a savings account for the overseas trip. They might have a picture on the on the on the, on the bedroom wall of, of the flight they're going to make. You can create an artificial world in your mind. And if not, it's always reinforcing that they are loved. All right. Absolutely. Hey, thank you so much, Joseph. We'll look forward to Catherine, part two great. next time. Yeah. Take care. We'll see you then. Bye. Bye. Joseph Dreesen. 
This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. 